And so today, we're going to take an entire week and two different sermons this morning for myself and Pastor Paul to talk about, first of all, the holiness of God and the love of God in order to be able to thwart the lies that we face when we are tempted and the lies that we face when we are accused. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. I set those simple words before you this morning in these next few minutes as a declaration of the wonder of the otherness of God. Holy is he. It doesn't say holy is we. <laughs> it says holy is he. It's not a celebration of the we, of ourselves. It is a declaration of the celebration of something that is true about God. Holy is he. It is a positive expression of treasuring. And if you don't get anything else of what I'm going to say the next few minutes, this is what I want you to get. That there is nothing more significant in thwarting the temptation of the devil than learning to nurture and possess a positive treasuring of the holiness of God. That it is not a negative, dreadful object to be, to be fled from in the name of love. Rather, love is what allows us to flee to the holiness of God and be safe there. It is what God is all about in the scriptures. Holy is he, and, is, and it is what the devil is all about and how he deceives us. Holy is he. It's a declaration of the truth to the creatures, to I'm a creature, you're a creature, all of God's creation, that there is something above and beyond and greater than creatureliness to which we can flee to, to which we can run to, to which we can lay hold of that is not on the plateau of our sphere, that is above us, that is beyond us, to which we can go to, that is entirely and completely, utterly different than us. The psalm would go on to say in Psalm 99, if you read through it, that Moses and Aaron and Samuel are amongst those who trusted in him. And it has been so with God's saints all through the generations to celebrate and proclaim and treasure the holiness of God. Holy, 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 the scripture says over and over. As the angels declare in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is never a cry of despair that God is unreasonable. You ever heard that? It's a completely and entirely negative concept. Rather, holy, holy, holy is a positive proclamation that God is incomparable. It's something that's really hard to define. And so language gets to its boundaries, trying to describe the holiness of God. I like these words by John Piper. God's holiness, that means that his being and his character are utterly undetermined by anything outside of himself. Wouldn't you like to lay hold of something like that? That isn't manipulated by, dependent upon, anything outside of itself? He is not holy because he keeps the rules. He is the rule. 
God is not holy because he keeps the law. Rather, the law is holy because it comes from God. Tozer says you can't take some human idea about God and just extrapolate greater and greater and greater. He is completely and utterly different. And as so is the greatest anchor there can possibly be for the human soul. R.C. Sproul says the clear sensation that a human being is, has when he's in the holiness of God is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. <laughs> it's humbling. Creatureliness. When we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of our creatureliness. And this is the opposite of the devil's temptation to Adam and Eve. But the devil says, you shall be as gods. God is holy. Holy is he. The greatest spiritual decision that you will ever make in your life, whether you're six years old or more than six years old, center on this idea of God's holiness. That sounds dramatic, but it's been absolutely true in my own life. Will you treasure it as the ultimate place of shelter and safety? Or will you understand holiness as the ultimate obstacle that stands in between you and your happiness? Sometimes the church is an unwitting partner in the devil's schemes. And that's true, I think, of the perceptions of ideas of holiness. Growing up in the church, I only ever heard holiness cast in negative terms. God is holy, therefore you will not. God is holy, therefore you will not. I've never, ever heard the positive declaration and the treasuring, holy is he, of God's people. And I think the world desperately needs to see God's people treasuring and loving the holiness of God. Rather than using the love of God as an excuse to deny it. Tremble? Yes, the holiness of God makes us tremble. Vulnerability? You better believe it. You will face a no place of deeper vulnerability than in the holiness of God. But there is nothing that will be exposed in you in the presence of a holy God that is not directly corresponding to, the, to, to Christ, to Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's a subject that is very dear to me. Nothing has so helped me to resist temptation, to flee from sin, to hate sin, to adore Christ, to trust God's wisdom over my own reason, to understand the love of God for me, to abdicate governance of my life for my own reason than this single thing, to worship God in the splendor of his holiness and his absolute perfection of otherness. Now, why? Why must we treasure holiness? Well, nothing obliterates the religion that exists in the me universe more than the holiness of God. And there's a lot of religion that exists in the me universe, that exists in the realm of entitlement, that uses religion purely all about ourselves to get where we want to go. And you can see why the holiness of God would be an obstacle to that. Nothing more quickly obliterates that and puts us in the 
universe of God than the holiness of God and sucks the entitlement out of us and fills that vacuum with worship than the holiness of God. Holy is he. There is no greater thrust of the sword of the Spirit to deal with our temptation than the treasuring of God's holiness. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, our, 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 our heart fall, goes to our treasure. If our treasure's here, our heart's going there. Wherever our treasure is, our, our, our heart's going there. We wish we could control our, our heart more, but actually it just goes to wherever our treasure is. It's like, do you ever see those little kittens when they play with a laser tag on the floor and the, the kitten's bouncing around trying to, trying to get the laser tag and, and jumping on the laser wherever you point the laser? Our heart is like that kitten. It goes to where our treasure is. We will always flounder with succumbing to temptation in our hearts if we do not treasure God's holiness. Our heart goes to where our treasure is. There is no greater defense to the devil's schemes than the offense of treasuring holiness. No, how? How do we treasure holiness? We treasure holiness by allowing the holiness of God to meet two of the most greatest questions that you will ever ask and will determine much of our paths in life. And those two questions are this. Where am I most safe? That question is underlying all of the temptation that we face. Where am I most safe? And the devil will say, don't go there. You are not safe there. God is not to be trusted. You are more safe in your own autonomy, in your own reason, in your own entitlement. The other question is, where am I most fulfilled? Underneath every temptation, you will uncover that, tem that, that lie that God stands in between you and your most fulfilling life. And he says, don't go there. You know those B movies where, where somebody's going to open a door where there's somebody bad and everybody in the audience is going, don't go there. Don't open that door. Well, Satan has the whole world as his audience saying, don't go there. When we get to the door, of holiness. The whole world screams, don't go there. But it is where we are most safe and where we will be most fulfilled. Underneath every temptation, you will find a lie about the holiness of God. God is unreasonable. God is not to be trusted. He does not have your happiness in mind. Daniel was never safer than in the lion's den rather than in the palace of the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were safer in the furnace than they were worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's image. Joseph was safer in jail than he was in the bed of Potiphar's wife. Jesus was safer on the cross than he was in the hands of the people. May God heal our hearts and minds as it goes to where our, our treasure is to treasure holiness. We're going to collect an offering in just a moment. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious and mighty God, I pray that the work of your spirit would help us to grasp you as you reveal yourself in all of your splendor, all of your might and power, and 
holiness and love. I pray for the Jutresses in Poland. Lord, help them, I pray, in that country, working with camps and children and youth and men and women and churches. Keep them safe, I pray, in their ministry and in their own family and their children. For your work, I pray. Help us as we give now and continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Father, for that reminder of the great extent of your love and um, for the incredible faithfulness that you demonstrate to us um, moment by moment in our lives. Help us as we turn to your word again now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a real uh, treat to have the kids with us. And I don't know about your family, um, where you grew up in, but I used to remember that when we would go home after church, we would ask our kids, so what did you learn in Sunday school today? And so I want to give you kids permission to say to your parents from time to time, what have you been learning in church today? And uh, maybe you've picked it up. One of the things that we have been talking about while you've been up in your classrooms learning is we've been talking about how it is that we fight the devil, uh, Satan, our adversary. And just as you struggle as kids with things in your lives, as you grow in the Lord, you will realize that you also have an adversary that your parents struggle against, and that adversary is Satan. Pastor Barry has helped us understand that one of the ways in which Satan attacks us and tries to trip us up is to tempt us and to tell us that God's ways are not perfect, that his plans and his actions and his works and his deeds are not perfect, they're not holy. A second way that Satan tries to trip us up is to tell us that God doesn't love us or to tell us that we can't achieve God's love. And the way that you have to understand God's love is not in a, a vacuum, not in uh, a con, uh, context all of its own, but you have to understand God's love against the backdrop of God's holiness or of God's perfections. And so I want us to just think a little bit about God's love today as the way in which we fight the accusations of Satan when he comes and tells us that God doesn't love us. The Bible is very clear. It can't be any more succinct when it says God is love. In another place in the scriptures, in the Psalms, the psalmist says the Lord is rich in love. And so we find everywhere in the scripture, those are just two of the most succinct statements, but the love of God is almost on every page of the Bible. And I've been thinking, wrestling with such a simple topic and realizing that I don't really understand it as much as I need to. And I've been asking myself all week, well, what is it about love that we so want? What is it about love that we so need? Why are there so many songs about love? Why are there so many um, uh, uh, poems that express our need for our love or desire for love? Why do we seek after love? Uh, there's a script or description that we use w once in a while, looking for love in all the wrong places. But what is it we're looking for even when we go to the wrong places? And I think there's a little bit about love that maybe we're looking for when we think about it this way. Every single one of us, no matter how old or how young we are, wants to be fully and completely accepted. We want that we want there to be nothing that can risk somebody's love for us. And so we want to 
um, know that no matter what somebody knows about us, they will love us. I don't think there's anybody here today that doesn't have a few secrets that you don't keep those secrets to yourself because you're afraid that if somebody knows that secret about you, if somebody knows that thing that only you know about yourself, that perhaps they won't love you anymore. Or perhaps they'll love you less. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible, is that God knows every single one of our secrets. He knows absolutely everything we have ever done or thought. And yet he loves us fully and completely. But the more amazing thing about that is God loves us so much that not only does he know those areas of weakness and those failings and those things that we think about and the things that we've done that nobody else knows about, but that God wants to help us to become perfect. And he wants to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. So as we think about God's love, there's two ways I want us to think about it, ways in which we combat the lies of Satan, that God doesn't love us or we won't be accepted by God. One is I just want to drop on you some facts of God's love. I just, we need to have biblical truths that, that are facts about God for our head that we can throw back through our self-talk when the evil one stimulates us to question God's love. And then I want to talk about the experience of God's love. So what are some of the facts about God's love? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us again and again that God's love comes to those of us who don't deserve it. God just chooses to love us, which is an astounding thing. There's nothing in us that deserves God's love. There's nothing that in us that appeals to God. The Bible tells us that God loves us before we even loved him and while we were an enemy of his. So Romans tells us that God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God was showing his love to us while we wanted nothing to do for, with that love in the fact that Christ died for us. Another writer says it this way. He says, God manifested his love. God revealed his love. God made known his love to us. How? In the cross. When Jesus died for our sins. Ephesians talks about how we were so bent on doing everything that was the opposite of the holiness of God, everything that was opposite about the perfections of God. We were so bent on doing that, it says, but God, who was rich or great in love, was gracious towards us in Christ. So that's one thing about God's love. The second thing about God's love is he initiates, or he, he's the one that chooses to love us. He is the one that comes looking for us, um, some of you are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. And if you've read that story, you know that after Adam and Eve sinned, they were hiding. And why were they hiding? They were afraid of God. And what does the Bible say? God came looking for them. And that's what God's love is. It's a seeking love. It's an initiating love. God comes towards us. We love because he first loved us. The third thing about God's love, and this is, this is something that no matter how old you are and how long you've walked with God, I don't know if we'll ever grasp, but that God's love is eternal. It reaches back into eternity past before the world was created, and it works, looks ahead to an endless eternity. And so, for instance, the Bible tells us that 
before the world was made, before the foundation of the world, God loved, uh, predestined to love us. That means that God determined, before he created this world, he determined that he would love you and me. That is massive. So thousands and thousands of years ago, God had already said, I am going to love you. But not only that, Jeremiah tells us this. There's a prophet in the Bible, Jeremiah, and he says, he records the words of God. And God's word that he had Jeremiah record was, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's amazing. That means that God's love will never run out. It will never come to an end. It didn't have a beginning and it won't have an end. That God's love is an everlasting love. There's a psalm in the Bible, Psalm 136. And in that psalm, 26 times, it tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself? Do you think that's just a statement that floats out in the air? Or do you think that is a declaration of God for you? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What about Romans 8, 38 to 39? Nothing. No lie. No cheating on a test. No lustful thought. No envious thought. No powerful person, no influential person, no devil. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Finally, building on that, God's love will never change. Some of you may have heard, even as young children, that you can fall into love and you can fall out of love. Sometimes you think when your parents are fighting, you think, well, I don't think they love each other anymore. The Bible tells us very clearly that God never changes. It tells us that God's love is something that is constant. And so there will never be a time. This is so important for us to understand that there is nothing that we can do that will ever cause God to love us more. I know sometimes kids, I think we think that with our parents. We think, well, if I'm just a little better at sports, if I'm just a little better at math, if I'm just a little better at cleaning my room up, maybe my parents will love me more. Or sometimes we think conversely, oh, if I've done something wrong, you know, I, 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 I actually stole a cookie when mom told me not to steal a cookie, and now they're going to love me less. Well, it's not true of your parents, and it is absolutely not true of God. There is nothing that you can ever do that will cause God to love you more, and there is nothing you can ever do that will cause God to love you less. I can't wrap my head around that because we are so performance-oriented. And the wonderful thing about that is our relationship with God, then, is not based on our performance. It's not based on what we do or don't do. God doesn't love us more if we do things that please Him, and He doesn't love us less if we do things that displease Him. His love towards you and I is constant, it is unchanging, it is enduring. It can never diminish, and it can never increase. So those are some facts about God's love. The Lord is rich in love.
Let me give you some examples of the experience of God's love. Because I, both Pastor Barry and I want you to get a sense of the truth, but we want the truth to make that 18-inch journey from your head down to your heart. And so I want you to try and make that journey with love to take it from your head, these facts about God, and let it fall down into your heart. Some of the lies that Satan tells us in adversity. So when you go through tough times, in adversity, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to doubt God's love. And so our self-talk, the things that we say to ourselves is something like this. If God really loved me, then he wouldn't have allowed this to happen in my life. Have you ever said that to yourself? Even for a moment, as you've gone through a difficult time or faced a real trial or something has gone sideways in your life? So what we're actually doing is we're saying that, that we think that the circumstances of our life disprove God's love for us. That is a lie. And in accusation, we are led to believe that something we have done makes, us, um, uh, un, uh, uh, makes God's love for us unachievable. So the self-talk goes something like this. And we say to ourselves, do I really think that God can love me after what I've done? I've done it so many times. I've done it so often. I, I can't express my sorrow enough. And so what we think is that God's love is contingent on my behavior. And we say that the better behaved I am, the more God loves me. So you obviously know then how Satan works in your head. If you've fallen short of the holiness of God in some way or the perfections of God in some way, you hear somebody whisper in your head, how can God love you? Jerry Bridges wrote, my experience suggests that Satan attacks us far more in the area of God's love than either his sovereignty or his wisdom. So let me unpack a couple verses for you. Zephaniah 3.17. It's an Old Testament passage. Um, if I were Pastor Barry, I'd say something like this. Find Matthew, go left about five books, and you'll find Zephaniah. Um, uh, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is living among you. Stop there just for a moment. Do you know that God lives in you? If you're a Christian today, that God lives in you through his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So the Lord your God lives among you. He is a mighty Savior. And then listen to these three things. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I, I so was... was taken by the additional descriptions of that. It's not just simply he delights in you. How does he delight in you? With gladness. It's not a forced delight. It's, it's not, oh, well, I guess I have to be happy with him. It's this delight that is, he's so happy to express his delight in you and I. And he, he, he calms us or he's quiet over us. How? With his love. And he rejoices over us. How? with joyful songs. Let me come back to that phrase, 
With his love, he will calm your fears. One Old Testament commentator translated it this way. He will be silent in his love. And then he writes, such is the Lord's love that it goes beyond even divine words. And what he's trying to say is he's trying to, trying to put it this way, that sometimes as God considers you and his love for you, he's, he's at a loss for words. I know that's a dangerous thing to say, but that's implied in the text. Have you ever been at a loss for words to express your love? This is what the writer of Zephaniah is saying. It's worth noting that there's a number of words for love in the Bible. In the Old Testament, one of the most familiar ones, as we've talked about it, is the hesed of God, the loving kindness of God. And it's a love that's based on his commitment, on his unfailing fidelity. It's a love that lives in the will as much as in the heart. But the word that's used in Zephaniah is a heart word. It's a word that's used to describe the love in marriage or in gardening. So, for instance, it describes the passionate love of Jacob for his wife, Rachel. It describes the passionate love of Michal for her husband, David. It describes the fatherly love to his son, um, uh, Joseph, from Jacob to Joseph. It even describes a king's love for gardening. It says he loved the soil. He was passionate about digging and growing and vineyards and, and gardens and stuff. God passionately loves his children. And this verse implies that he silently adores them. I bet there's not a child here who at one point in your life, when your mom and dad have put you to sleep and you fall asleep, that just before your mom and dad go to bed, they slip into your room and they just look at you. Believe me, they do. And they look at you and they are at a loss for words. They are just full of love most of the time. No, they, no matter what, but they, they just, they look at you and, and they just are amazed. And they say, you are my son. You are my daughter. I don't think I can love you any more than I love you now. And sometimes they just stare at you and, and they're at a loss for words. That is a picture, I think, of God to us through Zephaniah. A few months ago, um, an individual that speaks into my life sent me a note, and he says, Paul, I was just thinking of you. And I, I, I just want you, for the next little while, Paul, to think about Zephaniah 317, and think about the songs that God sings over you. Never thought of that in my life. Never. But he says, he will rejoice over you with singing. And so I started to think, well, what is it? What, what words would God sing over me? What does he see in me that he doesn't see in anybody else? What is the content of that song? Because we know from Psalm 139 that he has knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows us intimately. He knows our thoughts before they come. He knows my coming and my going, my getting up and my getting down, my sleeping and my waking. He knows everything about me. He knows me uniquely. So what is it that God sings when he thinks about me? It was a fascinating challenge. But it's a way of understanding that God's love for you is a personal, intense love. 
we might momentarily question the goodness and the love of God. I, I think as kids too, and you hear me kids, I, I'm talking to you a little bit now because there are times when you think, oh, my mom and dad don't love me. Maybe because they don't allow you to do something you want or they don't allow you to watch something you want or they don't allow you to stay up late at night or they don't allow you to have friends over. And so you say in your heads, my mom and dad don't love me. Well, you know, we, we do that as followers of God too. Sometimes we say our heavenly father doesn't love us. David said, I said in my alarm. He, he looked at his circumstances and he looked at what was going on and, and he said to himself, I am cut off from God's sight. Yet listen to another verse of how God describes his love for us. And if you, if you want texts to um, put in your heart to speak to yourself truth when the lies of Satan comes, here's another one, Isaiah 49, 14 and 15. Here the prophet says, but Zion said, and this is self-talk again, the Lord has forsaken me, my God has forgotten me. Have you ever said that to yourself? As you've been walking with God and all of a sudden your life has gone sideways or backwards or been turned upside down and you say, God's forgotten me. This is God's response to that self-talk. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. In other words, he draws their attention to one of the strongest bonds that humans know. And it's the bond between a mother and her child, her nursing child. And it is such a strong bond as you're held in your mother's arm and you're maybe when you're little and you fed from her breast and you just looked in each other's eyes and there was just this sense of security, this sense of love. And the prophet says, you know, there are even times, no matter how strong that bond is, when a mother will reject her child. But God says, even though they may forget, I will never forget you. In other words, God's bond of love for you is stronger than the strongest bond that we see around us of love. Lamentations 3.19. Here's self-talk again. I remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and my God, my, my gall. And here's the self-talk. My soul continues remembering it and I am bowed down. In other words, I continually remember them and I become depressed. Have you ever looked at your life and the circumstances of your life and as you think them through, you just become more and more depressed? And it, as you talk to yourself, you say, wow, this really is awful. This really, I don't like this. And the more you think about it, the more sad you get, the more depressed you get. But you know the way out of that? He says it. But I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? What does he start talking to himself about? What does he tell himself? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You see how you combat the lies of Satan? The accusations of Satan? When adversity causes you to start lying or believing the lies that 
the evil one tells you or that fuel you, you say, no, I call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. And you stand on the truth and you talk to yourself about truth and you repel the lies of the evil one with the declarations of truth from God's word. We learn such self-talk at a very young age. Sometimes as children, as kids, when we don't get our way, when we don't get what we ask for, when mom and dad don't give us what we want, when they put boundaries on us or restrictions on us, what we actually begin saying to ourselves is, they don't love me. And sometimes we actually as kids say to our parents, you don't love me, do you? And sometimes kids can be even crueler and they say, you hate me. Early on, we begin connecting love with getting what we want, never having a bad day or never having to be corrected. And we take that with us into adulthood where the Bible says God's love is expressed in an eternal way, but sometimes through adversity, sometimes through discipline, sometimes by allowing difficult things to come into our lives so he can bring out something in us that he wants to bring out in us. So loved ones, if we're going to trust God's love, we've got to store up in our hearts some of these great truths and use them and to fuel and to fill our self-talk with biblical content, with biblical truth, to repel the lies of the evil one, either about the beautiful holiness of God or the greatness of the love of God. And then we use them to defeat the lies of the evil one. Anytime we are tempted to doubt either the holiness of God or the love of God, go back to the cross. That's one of the starting places to remind ourselves of both how holy God is, how the perfections of God are worked out even through the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, and how the love of God is expressed in the cross, that through Christ he forgives our sins and enters into eternal love a contract with us. There's a verse in Scripture. can't find it right now, and it's gone from my head. But it talks about if God has freely given us his Son, will he not freely then give us all things? This is the ultimate expression of the holiness of God and the love of God for you and I. May God help us to feed our souls with these twin truths so that we can repel the lies of the evil one that are thrown at us day in and day out. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its help in our day-to-day -day living. And I pray, Father, that uh, every one of us here who knows you as our Lord and Savior, who has put their faith and trust in you, would nourish our hearts and our souls with these foundational realities about who you are. You are holy. 
and you are love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the Lord's table now, and it is a wonderful opportunity for us to examine our hearts. We encourage you to do this on a regular basis, to examine your heart so that we come to the table with right thinking. This morning, I want to encourage you to examine your heart on those twin truths about the holiness of God and the love of God. Have you been doubting them? Have you been thinking wrongly about them? Allow this table to begin to correct how you've thought about the holiness of God and the love of God. I hope you've heard uh, Pastor Barry in my heart today. Our heart is that you grasp not only the knowledge of the holiness of God and the love of God, but that you experience them. There's nothing quite like, as Barry said in his own life, the transforming power of understanding the beauty and the splendor of the perfections of God revealed in his holiness. And as I've tried to articulate, there is nothing like experiencing the love of God your guilt, your shame taken away, and his profound love, measureless and sure. And it's demonstrated first and foremost here at the table. Father, we thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the incredible plan behind the cross from the foundation of the world, stretching into eternity how it centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. That God manifested his love to us by sending Christ to die for us. I thank you that Christ bore in his body those things that made me unacceptable to you. And that because of his death, I became acceptable to you. I'm so thankful for his body, which was broken for me. We give thanks for that individually today. In Jesus' name, amen.